0: Welcome to the Classic Car Corner Podcast. We are glad you can join us here today. Our guest here this evening is a multiple award-winning writer and founder of the British Sports Car Hall of Fame, a championship-winning vintage race car driver, and the executive director of the Madison Avenue Sports Car Driving and Chowder Society. But first, a word from our sponsor. Today's podcast
1: is sponsored by Springdale Automotive, the next generation in car care. Locally owned, professionally operated, whatever you drive, we service. Domestic, Euro, hybrid, electric, classics, and diesel. Springdale's classic car services include maintenance, repair, and diagnostics. With five convenient neighborhood locations, how may we be of service, Jason?
0: I'm Jason Painter, and co-hosting today is John Lockhart and Eric Benzel. And today we welcome Mr. John Nickus. John has won numerous writing and racing awards, including a Montague of Bulee trophy. He writes several monthly columns for magazines around the world. He has written more than a dozen books and is a frequent guest at all manner of automotive events. He has worked along and met some incredible people throughout his career, and we are privileged to have him here this evening. John, thanks for joining us here tonight.
2: Hey guys, my pleasure.
0: So, where did it all begin? We know from a young age, your father only bought British cars, so please tell us how this sparked your passion.
2: Well, you know, as a little kid, I grew up in Orange County, California, and probably about eight or nine years old, I discovered that the Cunningham Museum, which was founded by Briggs Cunningham, was just a few minutes away from the house. And I started going there on Saturdays, and pretty soon I started going there every Saturday, And uh, probably within a month or so, I got given a broom and started sweeping around the place and then became kind of the wheel cleaning boy and then took care of the library for a little bit. So I got to spend almost 10 years at the Cunningham Museum uh, really talking to guys like Mr. C and and Mr. Burgess. And, Mm -hmm. you know, not a lot of kids get to spend a lot of time around Bugatti Royales and uh, lightweight E-types. And it was a really great education. And when I got a little older and could ride my bike, I would head down a road and track um, and kind of see what was in their parking lot. So I I really kind of did this from a very young age.
0: And that sounds uh, uh, one of your commentaries on on one of the uh, I believe is the Blackhawk Museum. You'd spoke of that and how how fun and I can see where that would obviously spark your uh, interest in these old cars because they are some cool rides for sure. So um, moving on a little bit, you you had spoken of uh, Denise McCluggage and how she had made an impact on you. Uh, Please let our listening audience know who she was and why she was so so influential for you as well.
2: Well, if you don't know who Denise McCluggage is, you should do yourself a favor and kind of look her up. Mm -hmm. She was an absolute rock star. Um, She went off to Mills College when she was 16 from Topeka. And when she graduated, she got a job at the New York Times, and really was a pioneer in the field of participatory journalism, where she thought that if you wanted to cover an event, it was really necessary to know how to do it. And so she did a lot of sporting coverage. Um, she was a world-class skier, but you know, at least in this discussion, what's germane is she became one of the best race car drivers in the world. Yeah. And so Denise uh, won her class at Sebring, uh, In a uh, Ferrari, she was offered a ride um, at Le Mans, and she really competed at the highest levels. And then she founded Competition Press, which, of course, was a forerunner for Auto Week. So she was the first female uh, in the United States to actually publish a magazine.
0: Isn't that incredible? Um,
2: And I was lucky enough to kind of meet up with her early in life, and she was a great mentor and in and, and terms of teaching me how to write and what to write and mm-hmm. what things are important. Um, I've had a lot of very good writing mentors around, um, people like Graham Robson and John Zimmerman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously as I get older, you know, there are so many people I've had a chance to work with and I never would have thought I would have had the chance initially. Mm-hmm. So, um, Denise was just an amazing, amazing woman. And, uh, one of the few people that every day, um, I don't think there's a day that passes without thinking about her.
3: That's a great story. You know, it's history, automotive history at the early stages. Oh, sure. And a lot of people don't, uh, get into that and hear those stories. They just hear about the more modern things growing up. I, I wasn't really taught all the historical parts growing up. It was all the in the day, mm-hmm. in the day racers right. and things like that. So learning, being educated on those things is, uh, is great to hear. So, uh doing a little bit of background on you john uh i noticed that uh you like the triumph cars and you did a video of i guess one of your early uh experiences driving a car was in a triumph i believe and i think i i may have heard this wrong but it said at zero to 16 about 27 seconds
2: no that, that's probably an mg oh, I mean, mg the, the, there you go the, the tr4 i learned to drive in was a tr4a and you know, actually, it was probably one of the quicker cars out there. It was probably zero to sixty in about ten and a half seconds. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an MG TC is about zero to sixty in twenty seven seconds. There you go. <laughs> um, which is an improvement from the pre-war models, which is you know <laughs> zero to sixty in an hour, yeah, right? It,
3: it's funny to think that you know that was our fast times back in those mm-hmm. days, and, yeah, and technology-wise, right. and you know, uh, they were fast times.
2: Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing though how quickly. You know, you can drive a slow car fast, and it's certainly a lot more fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I did the Copper State 1000 a few months ago in a 1300 uh, Julietta Veloce. And, you know, oh, wow. except for the long straights, we can keep up with, you know, late 60s short wheelbase 911s and early 911s, um, as long as it's twisty. So, you know, oh, I, know right. I think a lot of it's, you know, <laughs> who's behind the wheel, but it, it is a lot more fun. I think to drive small cars quickly than uh, fast cars slowly. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. John, would it be safe to say that some of these cars have, um, they're lighter, even though, are some of the engines less, like a liter or something like that, but they're so light? Does it make them a little more nimble or am, am I hitting, yeah, hitting that close? Th- to that's that?
2: not really true with British cars, of course, okay. because, you know, for, for whatever reason, um, the British are the only people in the world that built an aluminum engine that was heavier than its cast iron counterpart, <laughs> um, you know, and like with the Austin Healy C series, you know, that is the second heaviest production car engine built after world war II, oh, wow. um, at 640 pounds. So, you know, it, it really is just an issue of, you know, good handling. Mm. Um, you know, you've got some good trailing throttle oversteer on most of these cars, but they're they're very rugged and, and they didn't make great race cars per se, you know obviously excluding the jaguars, hmm. but they were very good rally cars because they were very durable um they could take a lot of punishment but you know i, I like all things um yeah. it, it really is just a question of what you're in at a given time, and I think I can enjoy anything with wheels absolutely
1: <laughs> well, and I guess it comes down to i, I mean we have uh, you heard our shows before we do ask some really nonsensical questions here like my i'll ask you what was your car what car did you drive for your driver's test for example uh, i know wayne Wayne, when wayne was on the show he talked about his mom's old convertible oldsmobile and uh, it's always curious to see what what did everybody drive uh
2: well you- so the car i drove my driver's test was that tr4a very cool um, it is the first car i legally drove i uh illegally drove a Citroen <laughs> DSevo, okay. in, cool. uh, in Geneva, Switzerland, I think when I was 12 and a, a Triumph TR7 when I was 15 or so. Gotcha. Um but the TR4 was the first legal car.
0: Very cool. That is that is cool. So so John, uh, uh, we've got so many topics for you tonight cuz you've got such an array of different uh uh, backgrounds here but um your books um so how many have you written and what made you choose the topics and uh, i'm assuming a lot of these and all of these can be found on amazon for those who are interested correct
2: yeah most of them can be i've got a couple that are sold out and therefore don't show up anymore gotcha. i think okay. i've done 13 or 14 something like that okay um obviously some of them are on british sports cars which is what i'm pretty closely identified with right Um, I've been fortunate enough to get some freedom to do some interesting things. We did a book called The Face of Change, Mm -hmm. which looked at how automobiles have evolved over time. Mm -hmm. I just sent to the printer um, a book for the Coach Built Press with Bruce Meyer. Uh, It's a book called Badass. And it is an idea that Bruce Meyer had a couple of years ago when we were at the Quail, that we would include all these portraits of automotive rear ends, and then oh, nice. to make it more than, than just a picture book, we went out and asked some of the best designers in the world. So we have Gordon Murray and Franz von Holzhausen and wow. Henrik Fisker and Tom <laughs> Matano and Ralph Scheele and Ed yeah. Welburn, um, and I'm gonna forget a few people here. Mm-hmm. But we asked all these great designers, Andrea Zagato, um, how they design rear ends and, and why rear end design is important. So
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, that's gonna be a fun book. So oh, it also- yeah. sure includes will be a lot of Bruce's past history and talking about how he got into cars. And obviously when we talk about mentors, um, I would be remiss without mentioning how much impact Bruce has had on my life. Um, He has been a fantastic uh, supporter and a great friend. Um, Earlier this year, finished a book for Michael Cadori on eight liter Bentleys. We just finished uh, a book with Wayne Carini Mm -hmm. um, called Wayne Carini's guide to affordable classics, Mm -hmm. which is, Kind of near and dear to my heart because it reminds me of a book that Peter Bohr did when I was a kid um, for Road and Track that really talks about how to to buy classic cars and what cars are out there. Right. And that's the first in a series. um, And we'll try to do a couple or three of those a year.
0: Gotcha. I've got that book right here with me. Good. Yep. So. So as far as the content, though, as far as the topics, I mean, do you collaborate with others? Oh, I think we ought to write a book on X, Y, Z. Or is it just, oh, I, you know, um, somebody say, hey, John, I think you need to write a book on, you know, the, the, the tail end of these cars or leader sizes or. Yeah, um, how, did, how did those ideas
1: come right. to you? Is it do you reach out to them or do they reach out to you?
2: Well, so it's it's a pretty good bet that if it's a British sports car topic, it's something that I wanted to do. <laughs> right, I got broadly. you. Yep. If it's anything else, I mean, I've, I work for publishers all over the world. Mm -hmm. Um, I will, you know, get asked to write certain things. I'm doing a book on shadow that I was asked to do, um, by, uh, Dalton Watson. And, you know, it just depends. I've got tacked on my wall. I think I've got 19 books in the queue that I have to get done or have committed to doing. Gotcha. Um, which is probably overcommitting, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'd like to do them all. And, you know, I, I certainly like doing different things. We have a book on alpha. I've done a couple of books on Mercedes Benz. Um, and it's just, there, there are certain topics I'd like to do. Um, you know, I always try to not do car books. Um, a lot of my books tend to focus on, you know, social, cultural, or historical themes beyond automobiles. Um, Mm -hmm. so anybody can read them. You know they just happen to have cars as a medium right um you know the book we did with bruce really talks about automotive design but it also is really the story of how this young guy who was born in 1941 kind of grows up with the automobile mm-hmm. um so you know hopefully that'll be entertaining for people
0: oh absolutely and that kind of leads me to i know you're a commentator and speaker for many of the auto events as we mentioned in our intro here uh specifically that of the blackhawk museum in danville california there you spoke of the theory of automotive evolution which i thoroughly enjoyed listening to and while that topic could obviously last for hours what are some of your favorite takeaways from that speech
2: well, actually, that speech at the Black Hawk is a derivative of one I had given a couple of days earlier at Pebble Beach. Okay. So I've been fortunate enough to be asked to do uh, forums at Pebble Beach. And I think a couple of days before that presentation, I'd done one with uh, Leslie Kendall from the Peterson Museum and Ralph Giel from, at the time, it was Fiat Chrysler. And of course, now it's Stellantis. Um, but basically, it's that automobiles don't look the way they do by accident. It is a function of all these various factors. And we try to identify them all and assign some kind of weight to them and see how that happens. Um, You know, it's interesting. It really started because of my affinity for British cars. And I always wondered why British cars have these kind of tractor-like engines. And the reason is um, the RAC tax structure that was imposed very early on in the motor car's development um penalized bore but didn't penalize stroke Hmm. and so that's why you have these very long stroke big torquey tractor engines and in italy and germany they taxed overall capacity which is why you have these very efficient engines um And of course, in the U.S., they didn't tax anything at all. And that's why you had 12 and 16-cylinder <laughs> engines. Right. But that is one issue of where, you know, the financial tax structure affects how automobiles evolve. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it's the geography. You know, places that have narrow roads um, tend to have narrow cars or cars that have winding roads tend to have cars with, you know, well-spaced gearboxes. And so we looked at all these different factors and tried to figure out a way um, to predict how automobiles will evolve in the future and kind of look back at how they evolved in the past.
0: Right, right. Yeah. yeah. I, so I know in your presentation, you would spoke of form follows function, which um, uh, makes perfect sense. And that being said, in, you know, in your opinion, John, what is the best car made out there? And what car besides the Edsel uh, do you think should have never been made in production?
2: Boy, you know, it's funny. Over the last year, um, I've done a lot of chowder talks where we've had a lot of car executives and designers on. And I, I think we must have had probably 15 or 16 over the past 12 months. And we're all pretty much in consensus that the Aztec was a mistake, not in <laughs> right. what it was intended to do, but in how it came out.
3: Mm-hmm. Because
2: you had so many kind of... Um, I guess competing interests that weighed in on how the car looked at the end of the day. And so it was really a compromise. Right. And for me, you know, I really like kind of, on one end, I like single purpose machines. I think my favorite cars of all time are probably like a Jaguar D type, um, mm-hmm. a Ferrari 166, or a 250 short wheelbase. Um, you know, those are close to perfect cars. Um, where they look good, they drive amazingly, and you know they do what they are supposed to do. Um, you know, but but there are just dozens and dozens and dozens of great car designs. Um, and you know, we've had this Monday night Zoom group um, since the pandemic struck, which is just comprised of an amazing group of people. Mm-hmm. And we have you know picked our favorites. We've picked our favorites from the various decades. Um, and you know, certain cars always get identified and it's things like the d-type or the 250 short wheelbase or the gto right uh that that people really seem to to coalesce towards or an alpha 8c you know i Mm. i think if if you don't know what an alpha 8c is a 29 um you really should do yourself a favor and, and do some investigation because you know this was the supercar before supercars existed
0: gotcha
1: well, John, let me just take a quick moment here and ask our listeners to please check out our sponsor, GD Hearing. GD Hearing provides options on ensuring not only your classic car, but for all of your collectibles. Please check them out at com and visit us at our website, theclassiccarcorner.com, where you can access our shows, learn more about us and what we're up to. We're speaking with John Nickus. And I, I, I guess uh, I think everybody has like a – when we say what's your favorite – of all time that's hard because uh, like you're saying form and function what 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 would be my favorite car for x purpose uh racing touring taking the family taking the tribe cross country Uh, and then i guess the other part of that is you're answering the same question that i've had with the fellows down here is why did X company do this? Um, they've made reliable cars in the past. Why did they engineer it to have to have the engine come out every 30,000 miles? That seems rather expensive and tenuous. Why? <laughs> right. Have you had any uh, uh, more modern cars where you where you look at it and you, and you have the conversation of, now, what were their engineers thinking? Because it doesn't seem very practical for someone who buys it that's going to have to maintain this. Is there anything that just pops into your mind that just says, That one still has a scratch in our head.
2: Bad engineering. I I think any modern car um, is not meant to be maintained at home anymore. Um, I'm a fairly handy guy, and I, looking under the bonnet of almost anything, would have a hard time trying to identify any single component underneath all that plastic. So it's just a matter of priorities. You know, BMWs no longer have um, dipsticks. You know, they're not meant to be um, fiddled with at home. And so, you know, mm-hmm. that's just a function of um, what people want, um, what manufacturers want people to do. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is frustrating, certainly from a home mechanics perspective, but, you know, entirely understandable um, that the systems are so complex that you don't want some guy under a tree uh, monkeying around right. under there. Right, right.
1: Could they be a little too, com- I mean, because we've talked about that, about how if you don't have an Altel scanner or something, one of those types of, of uh, computer systems, just to plug in and see what's going on, you're not really going to get very far as a shade tree mechanic.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, any British car owner is a very good diagnostician, um, and you get to use all of your senses. You get to use your hearing and your smell and your taste sometimes, <laughs> um, you know, and that's something that, that's pretty far removed. Um in modern cars, but, you know, some of the basics still apply, but you know, it's, it it is amazing though, you know, growing up with a TR, you know, I checked the oil, not just every day, but sometimes every hour, every trip,
0: um,
2: you know, in a modern car, you never check the oil, you never do any of those things that you're, you're, you know, um, indoctrinated to do because the cars are so reliable, you know, originally most cars built in the fifties were designed to last for three years. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, a a fairly good Toyota Camry will last 300,000 miles.
0: Right. Right.
2: So, you know, we, we definitely have much better automobiles now than we ever have before. Right. No, I agree.
1: That's true. You know, you always grew up with the old do the pre-trip inspection, check the oil, check trans fluid, <laughs> check the coolant, make yeah. sure you have everything in there and
3: tire pressure. Yep. That's
0: right. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, John, um, I know at one point uh, you had led a charity called Drive Away Cancer. Um, th- this speaks highly of you because of your involvement and your awareness. Um, this is worth noting because you had driven a 1953 Healy, uh, I believe, from coast to coast. Um, and I believe the story has it that you've accrued over 300,000 miles on this car. Um, I, uh, can you confirm that and uh, tell us about your experience here?
2: Yeah, I mean, charities are very. Loose term, we didn't raise any money. Um, We didn't do it to build awareness or anything else. It it started out as just a drive to um, make a sick friend feel better. It was his car. He Mm -hmm. bought it off eBay. Um, It was a horrible, 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 horrible car. Um, (laughs) You know, it was shot full of rust. Mm -hmm. The frame rails were actually assembled with paper mache and spray paint. Um, (laughs) You know, started out, I think, with like 11 pounds of oil pressure. Um gotcha. And the whole point was he was given a very bad prognosis and I mm-hmm. said, you know, um, you can't rely on things like that and to prove what I'm talking about. I'm gonna drive your car um from coast to coast and back, um and we'll make it. And, and it was very it was very difficult, um, mm-hmm. and it took a lot of effort. We used about three hundred and thirty quarts of oil. Oh wow, about seven thousand miles. Um, and ended up having to do a bottom end rebuild in Albuquerque, New Mexico on the fly Gotcha. Um, and then went back out the next year, um, and stayed out for two years, um, visiting sick children and, um, eventually giving them a chance to drive the car. Um, you know, it seemed like the right thing to do at the time.
0: Oh, right. Right.
2: And, you know, this was a car with no windscreen, no top, no heater and, you know, averaged about 800 miles a day for every day. Gotcha. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I wouldn't do it again for a million dollars, but I'm not sure I would give up the experience for dollars. Oh million sure, meters.
0: absolutely. And that what a wonderful thing to do. That that that's for sure. And you know, obviously it's a short wheel based car, so it, it wasn't the luxury of riding in a long wheel based Lincoln Continental across these these miles. <laughs> so I mean, uh to be able to do that uh, for your friend uh, is is really a remarkable thing. So that, that is awesome um one of the other fun things again given your background you've gotten to meet a lot of really cool people there was a youtube uh, video of the lead guitarist richie uh, sambora of, of bon jovi tell us a little bit about that conversation if you don't mind
2: yeah i mean you know we got to meet some really amazing people um driving the car around we not only met uh richie we met uh uh, Jennifer Aniston and Angelina Jolie and Ellen and just, I mean all sorts of people. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I mean, that part was, was interesting. And, you know, the sad thing is that everybody has a tale of loss from cancer. Yeah. Um, gotcha. You know, so it, this is something that, you know, kind of touches everybody. And that was kind of the point, um, you know, that we got to meet, you know, Dave Foley and Stephen Root and Ed Bagley Jr. and, and Jason Priestley, and, and it was just a lot of fun to um, get to spend time with them. And it was not a lot of fun to, to realize why you were doing it. But, um, yeah, you know, it, 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 uh, it it's funny how cars bring people together. And, you know, certainly in my other pursuits, you know, you'll, you'll meet people all the time. Um, you know, I think one of the cool things was, you know, getting to meet John Oates and sure. Michael sure. Strahan. and Um, you know, all the people that kind of hang out at Amelia. So, I mean, that's always a lot of fun. Oh,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes
1: it's not the cause, but the effect that a car can have on people.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: And, and that's, and that, that, that's one of those common things that, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from, but if you have an interest in cars, man, we both have something in common and we can just, and we have a great conversation about that. And, one of those conversations I, I listened to, you to have a, a, a mini podcast, a podcast but of YouTube videos of you having having talks, about, talking about, let fine, I used to speak for a living, so let me try that again, <laughs> um, where you've talked about the history of British industry uh, post-World War II. And, and you talk about it pre-World War II and then how they came back, because again, industry in, there, in those areas, post-World War II, it was rubble uh industry in most of europe and europe uh in in London and england was really almost non-existent because of the war and and you talk about why England had challenges more maybe more challenges than uh, central Europe did uh based on how policies were enacted but then how the car industry really did save british industry and and it, it, and there's a really cool yeah, we're getting to a really fun little nugget of trivia here towards the end of this. But if you'd like to, uh, to talk about that for just a little bit, because I think that is so fascinating about how the car, as, as your book says, the car saved Europe, uh, saved England.
2: Yeah, I mean, and so this kind of all sprung out of um, a book that I did called Rural Britannia, When British Sports Cars Saved a Nation. And it wasn't that England had been reduced to rubble from the war. Um, obviously, you know, having never suffered from invasion, they actually fared off pretty well. Mm. Um But they financially were devastated. And after the conflict, of course, if you know your history, um, Winston Churchill was voted out of office, a new labor government came into place, and the United States stopped Lend-Lease without warning. And so Britain was essentially broke. And a number of things happened that by 1947, the situation had grown increasingly dire, um, such that there was, you know, a, a, a strong doubt whether the country could actually survive. And so even though Germany and Italy um, were getting Marshall Plan money and these industries were kind of sprouting out from nothing, um, Britain didn't have any of those advantages. And so the labor government issued an edict for companies to export or die. And the only way you would get steel or aluminum or rubber or wood would be if you would sell your products overseas. And so the one part of the British economy that responded Uh, with alacrity was the british motoring industry and you know about 90 percent of all british sports cars were exported to the u.s because um they could earn hard dollars in return because what the united states did was give them an emergency loan which in the history of the u.s government is the only loan that has ever been repaid and it was such a significant loan that it wasn't repaid until 2006 but it was repaid nonetheless wow um wow but you know, these little car manufacturers, and we talk about British car manufacturers, we're not talking about GM or Ford. Um, you know, most British car manufacturers are men in sheds. These were very small outfits. Um, if you looked at MG or Austin Healy, you would be stunned at how kind of small and communal their factories were. But these little sports cars um, earned enough hard dollars to build the modern British state. And without them, I don't know what Britain would have looked like in the 20th century.
0: Wow.
1: Would you say that during that time, it was probably a while, well, I mean, they, obviously they were building to survive, but you had a lot of exciting and various designs coming out at that time.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. Some of the designs were, were you know, ahead of their time, like the the mini from Alakas Agonis um, or uh, Malcolm Sayers E-Type. And some were, you know, really pre-war designs like the MGTC. Um so, you know, the nice thing about the British sports car industry is it runs the gamut from, you know, fairly advanced to, uh, you know, not far removed from a tractor. <laughs> oh, right.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and in your conversation about this, it leads to answering the question of which I never knew until I, I, until I listened to you. Why does James Bond drive what he
2: drives? Because William Lyons said no when uh, Cubby Broccoli asked for three E-types. Um, He didn't think he could spare them from inventory because it was selling so well, Um, and so he went to Newport Pagnell, and uh, Aston Martin uh, was thrilled to give him uh, three examples for the movie, and that association has essentially continued unbroken, except for some dalliances with Lotus Mm -hmm. and BMW uh, for, gosh, now
0: 60 years. Isn't that something? That is neat.
3: You know, it's amazing hindsight. (laughs) right. But, you know, Jaguar didn't seem to suffer from lack of exposure by not having it in there. But it would have been really cool if that Jaguar was in the movie.
0: Oh, yeah,
1: sure.
2: That's
0: right. Yeah.
1: I mean, did they they do that to anybody else other than just James?
2: Yeah, um, they did it to – actually, it's interesting enough, they did it to another James Bond, which would be Roger Moore, when he was playing the Saint. Um, So the producers of the Saint, which I think was ITV, uh, also asked for uh, Jaguar e types to be used as hero cars. And once again – uh jaguar said no and so put him into a p1800 volvos
0: nice <laughs> wow and that's something <laughs> yeah so, so here's another little fun tidbit while we're talking about trivia it was um and i believe i got this from you too john was you know your several designers were credited for having invented the mini skirt so did you care to tell our listening audience uh how that got its name
2: yeah, I mean, Mary Quant, who I think yep. most people agree, is, is, is the designer of the miniskirt. Right. Um, named it after her favorite car. Yeah. Um, which there would be the mini. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, no I don't know how many female <laughs> listeners you have out there, but, mm-hmm. you know, the most iconic handbag um, for most women is the Birkin bag, um, which was designed um, by uh, Jane Birkin. Uh, apocryphally, or, or, or maybe not, um, because she was in the back of an E-Type. Uh, one evening um and the handbag she had kind of dumped all of her contents out so the Birken bag she created um to kind of keep everything inside
0: oh cool see i mean that's just that's just fun trivia i had yeah, no idea that's great yeah absolutely <laughs> um john a few more questions here for you because again i know that uh we, we could go on for hours but um If we talked about some of your vintage racing cars that you've driven in the past, um, and I know you've alluded to some of them, but what's been your favorite? Why was it your favorite? And if there were any track in the world that you could drive on, which would you choose and why?
2: Um, I've been fortunate to drive a lot of great vintage race cars, um, mostly belonging to other people. And Mm -hmm. that's really been kind of all I've been restricted to over the past 15 years. Okay. Um, I I think a Jaguar D-Type is my favorite. Um, they are phenomenal cars. I've got a chance to drive a Healy hundred S, um, which is also a fabulous car. They are just, you know, everything you want in a race car and an E type, you know, is a fantastic sounding engine, but that X K and the D, um, which of course is essentially the same engine just sounds so much different, um, at speed that I don't think there's anything like it in the world.
0: Ah, gotcha. Gotcha. You know
2: and and the favorite event that I've done is, is the Goodwood revival. Um, I don't think that there's a better event in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. not even the Monterey historics, I think can, can hold a candle to it. I gotcha to see all those people dressed up in their period dress. Mm -hmm. And you know, I I think that if you have not done that, it's something you have to do and hopefully God willing, we'll be able to do that soon Gotcha. uh, and get back across the Atlantic. But you know, those, the kind of vintage racing events that are fun and and over the pandemic, um, I got a chance to drive Lime Rock several times, um, which is a track I've not yet driven. Um, and it was fantastic. It was green. It had trees mm-hmm. um, and a lot of history. Um, so I've been lucky enough to kind of race around the world.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. No, And how how fun and fascinating would that be? I mean, that's really a, a great opportunity that you've been able to 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 have and uh it's it's you know, uh I can only imagine. I am I'm, I'm six foot four. I have uh height challenges in some of these smaller cars, but uh just to be able to get behind the wheel of anything that would be fun and powerful on some of these um, tracks would be an absolute blast. So uh we're not too far from the National Corvette Museum up here in Louisville, Kentucky. We're about uh oh I guess an hour and a half away and um, there's a driving experience that I think that we're gonna try to take advantage of here in August and uh <clears throat> McLaren would be a car we're going to be taking out and obviously the uh the latest model corvette uh is going to be one of our drivers out there so that that'll be uh that'll be my experience here coming up here pretty soon which will be a lot of a lot of fun um la- lastly uh um john uh, cape coventry and the vrl do you want to do you want to touch on that for us
2: well, I mean, the VRL is just Stephen Page's Vintage Racing League, and, okay. and it's a great resource for racers. And Cape mm-hmm. Coventry, of course, is the moniker by which, you know, I do most of my own private driving.
0: Gotcha. But, okay. you know,
2: I am 6'3", with a size 14 foot. Gotcha. <laughs> um, and I've managed to get in some very, very small cars. Gotcha, and, right. Uh, if if you really have the chance, I would go to a Skip Barber racing school or a Bondurant school, Um and get a competition license, because you know, there are a few things better in the world than being able to drive a car as it was meant to be driven. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I've gotten older, and maybe less competitive, um, in some cars, I've, I've started to do a lot of pre-war cars. Um, and it's one of those things that it, it doesn't matter what you're driving. Um, it, it's just fun to be behind the wheel. That's
0: right. I agree. Yep. No, I agree. Absolutely um yep so john i I just again on behalf of uh, john eric and i we really do appreciate your time we know that you've got uh, some travels early in the morning and uh you've got a lot of events uh ahead of you so we are going to let you go but we have really enjoyed speaking with you your your history your knowledge and experience has just been so informative and such fun to talk about here tonight and certainly grateful for your time and support um here this evening and you've got an email that if people listening would like to email you, it's motoringwriter, W-R-I-T-E-R, at gmail.com. Is that correct?
2: That's right. And I do have an author's page on Amazon that you should be able to find okay. most of the books
0: Okay, great. Uh,
2: that I've done. And, you know, certainly keep your eye out. We'll have uh, Bruce's book released at Pebble Beach this year. Um, and then we'll have a second edition or second volume of Wayne Carini's Affordable Classics out. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and then if we're fortunate, we should have one more out by Christmas time.
0: Very good. Well, we certainly look forward to do, uh, to seeing these books come out for sure. So, again, thank you. And for our listeners of this podcast, please like us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe so you're notified of new shows. And please leave us a review. Remember to check out our new website, www.theclassiccarcorner.com. And thanks for listening. Until next time, happy motoring from your friends here at the Classic Car Corner Podcast.